Hey guys, this is John Karabi, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Turn it up, strap yourself in, and get ready for the stories, baby. Yep. Hey, Metal Ed, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to episode 569 of Focus on Metal. No, no John Karabi on the show this week, and I know you're saying, well, then why the hell do you have him up in front? And it's just a celebration of John being back with the Dead Daisies. Slots in so good with those guys, and I was psyched to see that he was back in the band. And uh, good stuff there. So that's that's why I put John up front. And besides the fact that it's my freaking show and I can do what I want. But there you go. There's the reason for having John up front here on episode 569. So what is on the show this week? Well, I'll tell you. This week we have guest, and I'm probably going to butcher his name, so I apologize up front right now, but it is uh, Mike Quaccioni, and he is the uh, former road manager, and now he's currently an author, just put out the book, Tales from the Gutter and Other Rock and Roll Shenanigans. And uh, since I did kind of butcher that, if you're looking for that, you want to look him up by author on like Amazon or anywhere else. The last name is C-O-R-C-I-O-N-E. So Richie had a big, long talk with Mike all about his past history, some tales from the book, kind of diving in a little bit deeper and all that good stuff. So a long episode this week, well over an hour, but it, I, just, I don't want to split it up. Uh, it's, it's a good story, good narrative, and I don't want to split it across multiple weeks. Plus, it's the summertime, you know? Kick back in the sun, relax by the pool, have a beer, listen to Focus on Metal. Or Mars Attacks, or the CMS Show, or Iron City Rocks, or the Decibel Geek. Another brand new great podcast that's out there is called Battle of the Bands. And now you'll hear a little bit from those guys later on in the show. But right now, like I said, just kick back in the sun, crack that beer, Listen to Mike and Richie talk all about Tales from the Gutter. Hello. Is that Mike? Yeah. Hey, it's Richie for the interview. How are you doing? Hi, man. What's happening? I'm okay. So where are you in the U.S.? I'm in New Mexico. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you said in the book you moved out west in the end. I didn't. I don't think you said where it was, though. I'm out in New Mexico in uh, the northern part of the state, close <laughs> to Colorado. Oh, nice. Nice. Nice and hot. Yeah, it's quiet out here. It's the, that's the that's the main point. <laughs> I, 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 well, I've read the book, and I'll say one thing about the book, Mike. It isn't quiet. There's a lot going on. No. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on in those days. Uh, you know, so the, the point is, if you you know pay attention to some of the talk about you know shedding skin and things like that you you know change is a constant that's something i've learned in life it's, it's, if you don't accept change you you fight life you 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 must change and and a lot of people just don't and that's fine uh but you know for me change is what makes the wheels turn you know it's like it's it's part of life so it's that person in that book is like it was me but it's like it doesn't seem now to me that it was me you know what i'm saying it's it's very strange mm. 
you, you alluded in the book that you were, you were writing it for a long time. So you, were, you obviously stopped starting it and then you'd stop. Like, what was the biggest gap between, you know, stopping and starting? Well, I, I never, I wrote stuff a lot, but I never intended those writings to be a book. So over the pandemic, I started pulling out old hard drives and stuff and things I had written. A lot of it was diary, diary kind of stuff. A lot of it was notes I had written. Some of it was full on short stories. Some of it was, uh, you know, I had interviewed people for a proposed book on LA guns at one point. I had a lot of interviews and I just, over the pandemic, I was not working and like everybody else, I had nothing to do. So I just put it all together and said, I'm going to put a book out. And that's basically what happened. But it was never like I set out to write a book, you know, 30 years ago. Mm. I, I know this is a cliched question, and it's probably a cliched answer as well, but I'm interested in your opinion. How cathartic was it for you to do this? Very. Uh, you know, I a lot of stuff I just put in the you know in back of my mind and you know you just try to forget it or you know that's part of growth and change is you've got to you've got to you know face whatever you need to face so it took me a long time to be able to to talk about a lot of stuff so it's it's good it feels great i mean I, like i said i'm i'm not that person anymore i can look at that person and you know give some empathy to what that person was you know and and understand that person more but that's not me anymore but it's it's the the key thing for me about this book was it's the stories and the times and the and the things that will never happen again because everything changes so it was a golden period you know between the 1940s and night in you know 2000 in there those 60 years where there's this american pop culture and it's over now and if, if if you can if you can mine the past and look backwards you you know there's value there hmm. now one of the things i love doing on the show is i'll bring musicians on and we'll talk about new albums or old albums or whatever but i'm always interested in people who worked in the industry roadies you know, musicians that were in bands that were hopefully going somewhere and it didn't work. And you're all of them. You know, you you did all you did all of it. You weren't just a, a guy that decided, you know, I'm trying to be a musician. So then I ended up, I can't be a musician. I'll just be a producer. You did the roadie. You did the roadie thing. You did the record industry thing, selling records and PR. And, and you've done it all. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the... the I never set out to do any of it, really. I just the, 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 thing, the thing I set out to do was to be a DJ. I wanted to be a DJ in nightclubs. Yeah. Because, because being a DJ in a nightclub in 1979, 1980 in there really meant something. You know, in the New York metro area, it meant something. It was not like taken lightly. So I wanted to do that all from the time I was in high school. So... All that led me to everything else. Like it just all fell in my lap and I get bored easily and I was jumping around and doing a lot of different things and I wanted to experience things and, and I did. So, you know, there was a good, I don't know, 15 years there, solid 10 years of just all of it. The, the, you know, the, the record industry, the, the, the rock and roll scene and nightclubs and yeah, but it was a different time. Mm. You know, drinking age was 18 
Yeah. I mean, it, it was, you know, and there was no picture on a driver's license in New York State till the mid 80s. So, you know, to think about the possibilities. Um, you know, so it was, it was that. I was just lucky to be in it, and I was very driven and very focused, and I wanted to be a DJ, and then this happened, and then that happened, and this offer came, and that offer came, and then you just, you just ride the train, you know? <laughs> yeah. The one thing that definitely comes across in the book, and I never really understood how, how powerful DJs were, because you said you were DJing in all these clubs, and, you know, you had a lot of power with, with the, you know, the labels and with your playlists and stuff like that. I never knew that you guys had that, that, that influence. In that time, you know, coming out of the disco era, you know, I'm saying the disco era really ended about in 1979. Disco really had about two years of, of a push. And out of disco came um, post-punk and, and, you know, early electronic dance music and all this stuff. And, and uh, a lot of it was European and, and you know, records from Europe and UK and, and, and it wasn't here. So uh, it, was a, it was a thing about breaking these records and then record labels would get interested in, and sign these records for America or the vice versa. You know, once you're playing to a room that holds 3,000 people and, you know, record company people would come down with baby bands and new artists and you know, the new new wave record they're trying to break and you know hey play this for me and what do you need you know it was very it was a lot different because there was no social media there was no internet there was no streaming there was records and there was ra- there were radio stations and you know format started to switch new waves started happening and and formats went from class you know, from old school rock to you know the new music coming out of out of britain and you know it all was happening in that period when i was djing oh. so you know hey I've watched records that I had. I held records in my hand as like test pressings that like later went on to be on MTV, you know, huge hits. So uh, I was right in the middle of that and it held a lot of power because, you know, there weren't a lot. I mean, there was a lot of clubs, but there was only so many DJ slots and you had to be really good and you had to know your stuff. You couldn't be a hack. Um, and you had to have the music, man. You had to go buy it or have possess physically hold the physical vinyl record there was no other option if you didn't have that record you were left out that wasn't good so you really had to be dedicated and driven and the record labels knew it and i fortunately met a lot of people most of the people i met on my travels through the world of music in the 80s was based off of being a dj Mm. the one thing that definitely comes across in the book is your passion your passion for music is like absolute. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a mad music fan as well. But you were always looking for, you know, the next band, the next high. You know, you, you were just driven to, with with for music. You you travelled to gigs. You were young and you'd sneak out and you'd go with Bruno and Steve West to all the. You see, you when you were living in New York, you had all these venues and all the areas surrounding it. Like you can probably tell, I'm from Ireland, right? So. I didn't have any of that. All these venues you went to, were, I knew the names of them and they were like, oh my God, I'd love to go there someday. And here you're saying in the book, oh, I went, I'm going there Thursday night and then Sunday night I went to the other one, and uh, Lemoore and all these places. I'm like, oh God, you just, you just had it 
right there at that time and you took full advantage of it. Yes, I I did. We all did. I mean, none of those people, Steve and Bruno and, and anyone else that was part of our, you know, crew, we were all music people. And, you know, no one had any ideas about doing any regular job. I don't think Bruno and Steve ever had a regular job. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, it, it's, it's one of those things you just live the lifestyle. So when you live the lifestyle, you, you get all the ins and the perks, you know, you know who to call to get in for free or mm. free tickets to this or that I means so that's, I, I hooked all those guys up with all that stuff because I had all the connections with the record labels, free tickets to Motley Crue, backstage passes to this. I mean, because they would, they would give it to me because I, I was working in the clubs. So yeah, it was, you know, it was just different. If you were into music then, if you were into bands and, but yes, you're, you're right. New York, where we are, where we were, there was so much. Everybody played New York. It was, you know, everybody from the biggest to the smallest. And there's lots of places to go within a two-hour drive. In two hours, you can be in Philadelphia. You could be in Connecticut. You can be a lot of places and, you know, see the same band four or five times in within a week. Yeah. So the, the other band that comes across as a massive influence on you as a kid and you saw them a ton of times, Twisted Sister. The greatest. They were the greatest. Yeah. Again, hard to understand for a lot of people. I mean, they were around for 10 years playing bars before they got a record deal. And they started out playing cover songs like David Bowie and Lou Reed and whatever. And then, you know, they morphed through the years. Dee Snyder joined the band in 76 and then they started doing heavier material, some Judas Priest and ACDC. And those guys were playing in bars and clubs. Some of them, I mean, the biggest one was 5,000 people, the Fountain Casino. And then they played a place in Long Island called Hammerheads that was uh, 3,200. Um, and these are clubs. This isn't a theater or a, uh, or a stadium arena kind of play. It was a club, an old, you know, Hammerheads was probably an old... Uh, supermarket, shopping center, supermarket, uh, massive place. And and um, they would play there and sell it out, 3,000 people. And, you know, no record deal, and they're playing cover songs. So, incredible band. I mean, you know, once, once they became more heavy metal and went to England and all that kind of stuff, they really became like a tank. They just roll over you. They were incredible. Hmm. And then they got a record deal, had a record deal, had a huge album. And that was the end. Um, they just lost focus. Mm. No, yeah, I, I, I love Twi- old Twisted Sister. Uh, incredible, incredible band. Mm. You mentioned our documentary, and I have to agree with you because with a lot of documentary these days, all they want to talk about is when they became big. But their documentary, it literally ended when they became big. It was all about the early days, and I I found that absolutely fascinating. How how actually how big they were back then in the area. Huge band. I mean, they were making crazy money, uh, but again, drinking age was eighteen. So so all through those years, you know, all through those mid late seventies into the early eighties, drinking age was eighteen. So you could put, you know, two three thousand people out on a Tuesday night. Kids don't care. They got a fake ID, and if it's eighteen to get in and 
legally drink. They, they're 16, 17 with a fake ID. doesn't have a picture on it. That's how all that was allowed to happen. Without that, there was no scene. It was all because of the drinking age uh, that you had the, uh, that amount of people going out. Once you hit your mid-20s, you're in college, you're out of college, and you're working. You know, you're not going out on a Tuesday night driving two hours to see Twisted Sister. But when you're 16, 17, 18, you are. And that's what all these kids did. Mm. It was an incredible incredible time. Mm. You partied with Motley Crue a lot. And it was a show at the Devil Tour, I think, where you did the most of it. I'm amazed you're able to remember any of that with the amount of drugs that you guys were taking. Well, we were young. That was the thing. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it was, you know, but I've always been that way. I'm an observer, you know, yeah. uh, you, you know, and, and I've always been that way. And I remember stuff or I wrote, I wrote a lot of stuff down, but yeah, it was just, I had the access. And then once they were like, once we, we sussed each other out, this is what this is this is this is what our relationship it really is between us. We're fans. We've got drugs. They want to do drugs, and that's kind of what it was. But they were very nice to us, which was, you know, I, I've seen bands be really nasty to people, and the Motley Crue guys were very nice, especially Nikki and Tommy. Those were really the guys we we hung out with. But it was like. Um, I always say it was like a cartoon. It was like cartoon rock star. It was so over the top and so ridiculous, uh, but so much fun. And only could happen in the 80s. Um, what it brought back, really, Motley Crue, they brought back that Keith Moon insanity, which was missing. You know, you had the heavy metal, which was serious. You know, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, all these bands, very serious. And then Motley Crue comes along with this fun pop metal kind of stuff. And they're like, it's like Keith Moon. It's like the total debauchery and insanity. That's what they brought back. And that ushered in the 80s rock and heavy metal bands and that whole Sunset Strip thing. Them and Rat. But Motley were the ones that really were like, this is how it's going to be now. And everybody started just acting crazy and doing cocaine and being nuts. Hmm. And I got to the stage with you where, you know, you're meeting these bands over a period of time and they'd remember who you are. And that's unusual because, you know, they might meet someone for one night and then they, they mightn't see him for a year. And then they might say, oh, I met you last year. And they'll go, oh, I don't remember you at all. But, but with you, they seem to know who you were all the time. Well, we had the constant access. So, so you know, some people will get once. And we were backstage every show. Yeah. So, and, and like I just mentioned, you could drive two to three hours in any given, you know, 10 days and see seven Motley Crue shows. Which you did. Because, <laughs> right, because, because they're playing Philadelphia, yeah. they're playing, you know, you're going to all these places. They, when you're in New York, you're playing Manhattan, Long Island, and New Jersey. That's three right there. Yeah. You do a, you do a couple in Connecticut, one in Philly. You know, we would drive all over the place, and 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 so and, and it was like every night we're backstage, and they just got like we got like friendly. So that you know, if it was just once, and then you didn't see him again for a year, it'd be a different story. But with us, it was like we went to every show. Me and Bruno went to every show, um, and you know, it was just insane. 
but but we had the access through the record company because of my working in these big clubs. That's how the access happened. And when somebody's giving you the access, it's all about then you and the artist. Do they want you around or do they, do they not want you around? If they want you around, you're good. If they don't want you around, you I don't care how many passes you get. You'll never get backstage. Mm. You seem to get on well with some of the rat guys too, especially Robin Crosby. Yeah, he was a really nice guy. He was like, um, again, big, big drug cocaine guy, but was always in control. He was not like the Motley Crue guys. Motley Crue guys were loud and wild, and he was like very subdued and had a real, you know, definite strong presence. Because he's a he was a huge guy. I mean, he had to be I don't know six four something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, he was a big guy. So he, his 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 girth, his his big body, and his he just had an intensity about him, and he was very cool. But underneath that, you could see he was like a gentle giant. He was a really sweet guy. He was very nice to us, also. And the other guy with Rat that we partied with was Bobby Blotzer, mm-hmm. who was he was like the Motley Crew guys. He was like. You know, really over the top, hyper energy, nuts, and that was it. Those were the two guys in rap that we really hung with. The other guys were like Stephen Pierce. He only wanted you know girls, and the other two guys were just like you know, you never saw him. Hmm. What, what about Mick Mars? Never saw him. He'd float in and out, you know, but he was you know he wasn't really a drug guy. He was more of a drinker and he was like you know he, he was, was older, older than all he was older and he yeah. didn't want to be around you know tommy was like a, a, a 10 year old kid you know on sugar you know what i mean he was just that's his his energy was just like great but so over the top the energy so if you couldn't stand to be around that it was tough you know what i mean <laughs> So, so like I can, I can understand how a bandmate like Mick Mars would not want to be around, you know, Tommy sober, more or less snorting cocaine. <laughs> you saw all the, you you had all the access. And you saw how all these guys behaved, right? And the one question I de- definitely wanted to ask him, Mike, was why did you agree then to manage these this bands on the road after seeing what these other bands were doing? Well, I really wanted to, I never ex- thought or expected to do, uh, be a road manager, but I, I, you know, wanted to do it. It was another experience that I had never done. Um, you know, the combination of me working for Relativity Records and being around the record industry, I knew how that end of things worked. And I knew how to, you know, kind of take care of things. You know, and that's why the guys in L.A. Guns asked me, Mick and Kelly asked me, because every time I'd go out to L.A., which was, you know, every four or five weeks, I'd go out to L.A. on record company business at the time. I wasn't working for the band, but, oh, they'd come hang out, and they didn't have any money, and I'd take them around and, you know, get them home and scrape them off the ground and get rid of girls, (laughs) you know, so they'd be like, oh, that's great. I'd already known Kelly Nichols from New York, so he, he introduced me to Mick. And they were like, you know, so end of 87, they just asked me, hey, come be our road manager. We're going to go on the road in, you know, January. And I was like, what? You know, 
and then they introduced. Then I had already met Tracy and Phil, <clears throat> and everybody's like, "Sure, this is great." Right on. I was like, "Okay." I took a huge pay cut and went on the road and was their road manager for ten months and almost cracked up. Yeah, after reading the book, I'm not surprised. How how steep a learning curve is it to be a road manager from what you think it's going to be to what it actually is? Um. I mean, as far as the duties go, I kind of knew in my head. But what you don't understand is that there's, you get very little rest. Uh, you know, there's very little sleep. And, and, and it's just constant stress. And a lot of it, you know, has to do with it's a million factors why any situation is good or bad. But, you know, the manager's style, how things were with the management, it was very unorganized at times. It was very stressful. Uh, but, I, you know, it's not like I was not used to stress. But, you know, it's like no sleep forever. <laughs> it's just, yeah. You never get any sleep. So you just get burned out. You're eating crappy food. You know, you're smoking weed every day with everybody else. It's just, you know. It's a, it's crazy. You go from, you know, just complete boredom on a bus for hours, driving for hours and hours and hours to you get wherever it is the hell you're going and you open the door and there's just a bunch of fans and kids everywhere. You're like, oh, God, I haven't slept in three days, you know. <laughs> so so it's just it's, it's a great experience, but it's always the unknown, some crazy person with a knife or a crazy girl or there's all, but, but that's, see, I had been around that my whole life in the nightclub world and everything else. I mean, nothing, nothing, uh, nothing will prepare you like, uh, working in all those clubs and bars in Long Island you, you, for anything, crazy people, crazy situations. So I was ready for anything, man. Mm. And I handled it. We handled it all, but it was very stressful, mainly because, I really cared about those guys. I got really close to everybody, and I wanted to, you know, take care of them. So, and if you can't, it's stressful. Um, you said in the book that Mick, Mick was the leader of LA Guns. What do you mean by that? I would say he's the leader as a, as a title. Yeah. But, but Mick was in the band from, you know, there was the very first incarnation of LA Guns was only around for a short period in 1984. Tracy Guns and guys that no one remembers made a little EP and never went anywhere and it just fell apart. So then Mick and, Mick and Tracy met and formed a band and they didn't know what to call a band, but Tracy had all these LA Guns stickers and posters, so they just called it LA Guns. So Mick was the guy that got the manager, that got them the record deal that organized stuff. Tracy did some work, of course, uh, but Mick was the guy that pushed everything. When I met uh, Mick in 87, LA Guns had already signed a polygram. The record, I think, wasn't done yet. They were still recording their record. And that guy was sending me stuff constantly when I was working at Relativity. I'd get packages every week with LA Guns. You know, he pushed, and he got the manager, man. And Mick really, like, he was in the band before Phil, before Kelly, before Steve, before Nikki B, before Steve. You know, Mick is, nothing happened without his okay. 
Okay. I wouldn't say he was the leader, but he had to say okay. Hmm. Now, when you're on the road with LA Guns, um, one of the things that definitely comes across in the book was, you know, you had the issues with the other guys for various reasons, drugs, women, and whatever, drink. But with Steve Riley, it was more to do with demands, that he he, he wanted better better hotel rooms, he wanted better facilities. That, that was a whole different challenge for you. Yeah, I mean, that was the, you know, if, if the original drummer would have stayed in the band, let's just say, it would have been more of a gang. Uh, with Steve, it became more these four guys in the gang and Steve, who was much older and much more experienced, had been through three or four, not three or four, two or three record deals already with different bands. Um, you know, he was in Wasp, he was in the band The Bees on Epic, he was in Roadmaster. I mean, Steve had been around forever. So, yeah, he kind of immediately was like, you know, he wasn't a dick about it, but he was like, this is what I need to function. I need a room, a quiet room, and I need the drapes black out like, you know, Elvis style. And this is what he needed. And he was the only married guy. I don't know why. So there- That's the other thing, Mike, in the book. He brought his wife on the road and that led to issues and you you, you, you tell a few of them in the book. Well, he didn't bring her on the road, but, but I mean, she would visit like... Like Nick's wife would visit, you know, you come out for a couple of days and go home, that kind of thing. But she wasn't on the road, I wouldn't say. But yes, once when we were leaving Hollywood to go out on the road, there was an incident at the hotel when we left. She was on the bus. Unfortunate, you know, I always liked Steve and his wife. I'd known them from the Wasp days. But, you know, it just is unfortunate because Steve was older and was much more focused on the bigger picture of the grand prize and you know platinum sales and those guys just wanted to rock and drink beer and smoke weed and chase girls really Hmm. Uh, you know and steve was more you know focused and it was there was a lot of tension there because i respected steve and i i understood steve an irish guy from boston i understood his whole background i met his family I, I'm, you know, Italian guy from New York. I get it. So I understood him. So I wanted to do good by Steve, but it was tough. Because if you, if I told those guys there's no hotels at all for the next two weeks, they wouldn't have cared. They would just slept on the bus and been dirty, and 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 not slept because they were younger. Phil Lewis was a little older. I think he's, I don't know. Him and Steve are close in age. But Tracy's the youngest guy in the band. And everybody, you know, associates Tracy as being, it's his band because it's L.A. Guns, Tracy Guns. And he's the youngest guy out of all of them. Mm. What advice were you given before you went on the road by the band's manager? Or was there any advice given at all saying, look, you have to, you know, at some stage these two guys are going to go at it, they don't get on. And was there, was there anything like that at all? No. Um... No, their original manager was a great guy, got them their record deal, English guy, used to be in a band in England in the 60s called Amen Corner, open for Jimi Hendrix, the whole 60s bit. Uh, Great guy, got him their deal, but he was like, took the passive approach to a lot of things. So, yeah, I mean, he was never like, watch this, but you know, 
I did, you know, I did once. Once the original drummer Nikki Beat left, and and Steve Riley came in as drummer, you know, I started sensing tension between the manager and Steve, or how the manager felt about Steve because Steve was very pushy, mm. you know. Um, but there was no sit downs. It's like, uh, you know, here, here's a, you know, I mean, as I say, I used to have a fanny pack around my waist, you know, just that was your life. Rolls of quarters because you was you know no cell phones or anything you had to find a phone and call people from the payphone. Rolls of quarters, a big pocket knife, condoms, a paper map, and off you go. You know that's kind of what it was. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a crazy time. The other thing that comes across as well, and I've spoken to enough musicians about it, is how how do you deal with life on the road? There, there's no uh, there's no book. Um, there's a lot of downtime, a lot of boredom. You're young, and you just go fucking crazy. You just go fucking crazy because you know it's it, it all looks the same after a while, yeah. and you just you, all you do is drink beer. LA Guns weren't a big drug band. A lot of a lot of weed, a lot of beer. Tracy never did anything. He was so he always straight. Tracy he wasn't a drinker or a drugger, and the band was kind of mellow. They weren't like Molly Crew or anything, but like it was the that what made it e- even crazier is yeah, Molly Crew were just pretty your basic rock and roll debauchery. You know, L.A. Guns. There was more. There's a, like a more of a clever twist on things. You know, Phil's a British guy. I mean, the guy lived with Britt Eklund for Christ's sake in England in the, in the, in the seventies. And, you know, and, and Mick's a very smart guy and Kelly's just really mischievous. So you would have a much more, uh, less violent, crazy thing happening, but much more destructive in the long run because it's much more cerebral, you know, thought out, uh, just destruction and mayhem and pranks and, you know, just that kind of stuff. Mm. One of the things you say in the book about Phil is he's a, a kleptomaniac, and that—I don't what, know about now, but yeah, he was. But, yeah, that, and that, to be honest with you, I, I read it in the book, and I said that's a name. That's that's a phrase I've heard, and I had to look it up, and I was like, oh. So I said, right, what what exactly do you mean by that, Mike? About Phil that back then? He just liked to to lift stuff. I mean, you know, you you'd always <laughs> stop. You'd, you'd always go to a truck stop. You know, on the road. Truck stops your lifeline. Yeah. You know, it's like where you can get fuel, it's where you can eat a hot meal, where you can get supplies, you can use a phone, whatever. But And they would sell tons of trinkets, you know. I mean, you're in the Southwest, and, you know, and there's truck stops, and there's knives, and little, little you know, all kinds of stuff that just, just loaded with stuff to just waste money on. Fireworks. So Phil would just take stuff <laughs> and and just leave, put it in his pockets, you know. And he got caught a couple times with minor stuff, but he got caught once with a biggie, and and uh, he's lucky he didn't go to jail. But he was he just that was him. He just he didn't need it. He just was like, oh, I'm gonna take this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Yeah, those guys would leave like they'd go out to eat at the diner at Denny's or 
somewhere and, you know, walk out on the check and leave, you know, waitress would get the cops. I mean, because you're in Kansas and these three crazy rock and roll dudes just walked out on a check, they're not going to be too hard to find. They all, bands always stay at the same hotels. The cops know right where to go. You know, so it's just that kind of stuff. And, just, and, you, and Mike, you had to deal with it. I had to deal with it and I dealt with it. Yeah, okay. I, I want to ask yeah. you, I want to ask Mike about a couple of the bands that LA Guns went out on tour on. And I want to know, did you have any interaction with any of the band members? I'm going to start with ACDC. Had no interaction with those guys at all, band-wise, band member-wise. Uh, it was kind of like implied right from the get-go, you know, got to keep your distance. The crew and everyone else was very friendly, very respectful. Everybody was great. At the very end of the tour, ACDC, after their show was done, brought all of our band and crew in on the very last night and met everybody, shook hands, and they, you know said goodbye and thank you and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we never really dealt, came in contact with any of the band members. I mean, sometimes you would, boy, you know, Mick would run into, Mick was born in Australia, in Adelaide, so, you know, Angus uh, would talk to Mick sometimes. In 88, Malcolm wasn't on that tour in 88, Malcolm was in rehab, yeah. so Stevie Young, their cousin, who's yeah. in the band now, he was playing, and they, you know, they'd have a beer at the bar sometimes, but at the arenas, it was Rolling Stones level stuff it was the, probably the best run tour i've ever seen other than the rolling stones now acdc's audience are notoriously hard for a, an opening act you know to go over well how, how did la guns do with the acdc crowd uh la guns went over really well i have to say um you know it, it's basically the same audience the t-shirts the back of the la guns t-shirts had sex booze and tattoos um you know very bikerish uh, it went over well. I mean, we played 35 minutes every night and, um, you know, if you had a, a, a half full house, that was great because you're the opening band. If you had a three quarter full house, you're really doing good, which happened in some places. Yeah, that was, that was an incredible tour to be on, man. They, they were top notch all the way and, uh, know what they're doing a hundred percent. Uh, it was great, but the audience I thought was was a good mix. There was you know there was, there was girls there, you know. I mean, by this point, you know, ACDC is huge. With uh, you shook me all night long, you know. This yeah. is not Bon Scott era, so <clears throat> so everybody knows ACDC songs. So you had a lot of girls compared to say Iron Maiden, which is just guys, just dudes, just <laughs> terrible. That was an odd pairing. I, I know you ended up on that tour. By, literally by default and at the last minute oh you, you're going to play shows with Maiden um, but you know I can see you guys going over better with it definitely with ACDC but Maiden are more of a strict you know metal band and LA Guns really are not yes it was not a um, it was not a good match but again when you're playing in bars and clubs and somebody offers you an arena tour, you do it because you're just you're you're trying to sell records. You're yeah. playing a, a lot more people every night, um, and uh, you know you, you do it. I mean, and also as their first album, you can't be picky. You, you know what I mean? You've got to do it. And it, you know it was 
no one was really excited about it. Steve Riley was excited about it because the management of Iron Maiden also managed Wasp, Rod. and he knew all those he knew all those people. Yeah, Rod Smallwood. Exactly. So he knew Smallwood and all the Maiden people. So, um, you know, uh, but in the end, you know, it turns out it didn't really matter who he knew because it, it was, they didn't do anything special for us anyway. Um, did you get to meet the Maiden guys? Uh, I had met the Maiden guys way back in 81, the Paul Diano days. Uh, and I'd met them as a fan back then and had arranged some, I'd arranged a record, in-store record signing for them in 81 in New York. Um, and then I, of course, I saw them again on the tour we did with them with LA Guns, but they, it was so long before they didn't remember me. And I didn't remember some of their people. But didn't socialize a lot with Iron Maiden. It's just, I don't know, it's just weird, the whole vibe with them. It was, you know, I don't know. Mm. I have to ask you about Vinnie Vincent. Before you go, if you like heavy metal and stories, then you'll love Battle of the Bands, the narrative form metal podcast that unpacks the biggest rivalries in rock and metal history. Season 1 took in Megadeth versus Metallica. And Season 2 went across the divide to explore the beef between Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. It's like Business Wars, but metal. Find Battle of the Bands wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit battleofthebandspod.com. Um, yeah. There's been stories out there well documented over the years about him. And the things you put in the book really don't go against what's, what's, been, what's out there. But for you, it was an absolute nightmare. Yeah, that was, uh, it's just amazing. It's like, I don't know, you know, he, he was in Kiss for a short period. And that just warped his whole thinking of like thinking how, 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 how big he was, I guess. I don't know. His, his road manager also had worked for Kiss. And, you know, Kiss, if you know anything about Kiss in the old days, Kiss were always known for having a really tough crew and tough-ass road manager and, you know, very demanding, you know, New York and pushy and bossy and and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that kind of pattern continued all through Kiss's career, really. Um, so this guy had worked for Kiss, so he had an attitude and a chip on his shoulder from, from the get-go. And he was like, you know thought he was still was in Kiss, I guess. I, I don't know, but it was very, you know, dickhead rock star, just psychotic stuff. I mean, the guy was delusional. Um, but really, when it comes down to Brass Tats, it was really came down to, it was supposed to be a co-headlining tour. And they didn't treat it like that. They treated it as it was their tour, and we were the opening act, and didn't you know, cause a lot of problems. The tour was supposed to be a couple months and it lasted like, I think it was three shows. <laughs> I mean, the guy, but, you know, the guy was real. they were really unreasonable, petty, just being dicks. But, I, but you know, a lot of it also was this whole 
guitar shredder, guitar wank stuff, you know, Vinnie Vincent, the guitar shredder, and Tracy Guns, the guitar shredder. So there was all this, who can be a sound check? Who can't be a sound check? No one's at my sound check, you know, with Vinnie Vincent. He, we couldn't even be in the building while he's sound checking. I'm like, are you kidding me? We just came off tour with, with friggin', you know, ACDC. And, and this guy won't even let us in the building while he's sound checking. So that shows you the level of ego involved for a guy that was on one Kiss record. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, it's just, it was so terrible. I mean, I talked about it in the book. It's just, it was just ridiculous. And yeah, the LA Guns, Mick and Kelly ended up uh, beating up one of the roadies. And the tour was kind of over very quickly. Um, was, Mar- was that when Mark Slaughter was in the band? Yeah, it yeah. was all the guys from Slaughter. Dana Strum, Bobby, Bobby Rock. Rock was the drummer, the, the muscle-bound guy. Yeah, and those guys were okay. Yeah, I'm sure they were. It was Vinny. They were kind of embarrassed, like, we're sorry, this is happening, you know. But they were really being bad. Like, you know, they pulled the the power out of the cables that powered all the amplifiers when L.A. Guns is on stage, you know. Or they would, all of a sudden the vocal mics would go out. Or it was always something happening over the course of a few days. And they refused, refused to strike their drum risers so we could set up we had a set up in front of them on the floor. Uh, and Steve, who'd been in a million bands, he wasn't having it. And the tension got too much and it resulted in physical violence. Um, <laughs> was, was one of the stipulations, if they did that, that Vinny had to close the show every night, that it wasn't, you didn't alternate? Well, that was the other thing was, so it was supposed to be like you flip-flop on headliners. Yeah. You know, um, but usually, usually when you're doing a tour of that sort, both bands are booked by the same agency. L.A. Guns at the time, well, we weren't booked by the same agency as Vinnie Vincent. I think Vinnie Vincent's agency was a big agency, maybe ICM, like somebody that booked Kiss or something. A big agency. L.A. Guns' agency was a rinky-dink little agency that didn't have any juice. So... Who knows? All I know is that our agency, the Rinky Dink little agency, said it's a co-headlining tour, and yeah, and this will happen, and you, the logo will be the same size, and all the ads, and you'll get the same stage room, and you'll flip-flop as headliner. I don't know if that's actually what went down. We didn't see the damn contract. You know what I mean? It's like, this is what we were told. So I really don't know, but we were told it was a co-headline tour. And we opened up for them every night for three nights, which was fine, because L.A. Guns, honestly, were on fire and would have blown Vinny off the fucking stage, and he knew that. Mm. That's that's why they were messing with us. So, you know, we would open for Vinny. We didn't give a shit, but we're not going to set up on the floor in front of your drum riser. That ain't happening. You're going to move yours, and we're going to set ours up, and if it takes another 20 minutes on the set change, so be it. So... They wouldn't even budge on that, and Steve wasn't having it, and that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> was Was Vinny the sort of guy that got the road manager to say all this shit, or would would he actually say it himself? No, he got the road manager. He, Vinny would just stand there in his pink wig and just stand <laughs> there and and just stand there while the road manager said everything, and we would just stand there and like look at us, uh, you know. And you know he wouldn't do anything. He, he was a little wimp, but but 
you know, whatever. I, you want your road manager to speak for you? Okay. But they were just being really unreasonable. And, you know, they, they knew who we were. They knew who Steve Riley was. Bobby Rock knew who Steve Riley was. This is all from Vinny and his, I don't work for Kiss anymore. I work for a guy that used to be in Kiss Road Manager. That's what this was. It was typical 80s, just bullshit. How long, Ego. How long did it take for the other guys in Vinny's band to come up and say, this has nothing to do with us? We didn't hear any of that till way after the fact because we were only with with that whole tour for three days. Yeah. So, but years later, you'd run into those guys and when they were in slaughter, and they'd be like, you know, say, oh yeah, remember Vinny Vincent? And they're like, oh man, we're so sorry. Like you know, they they knew, but like you know, I mean, slaughter was bigger than Vinny Vincent ever was. Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah. <laughs> Because you gotta have songs, man. As, you know, as much as I love L.A. Guns, they didn't have the songs, man. That's why Guns N' Roses was huge, because they had the songs. Vinnie Vincent's band, were they good live? We didn't even really see them. I mean... You weren't allowed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we weren't allowed to see them. So, I, I don't even know. I don't think we ever saw one show. I was too busy trying to keep those guys from losing their cool and doing who knows what. <laughs> Listen, Tracy and Phil just, they didn't get involved in any of this. Very, very diplomatic and neutral. Of course, when it came to the nitty gritty, they would have sided with their own band. Yeah. But they they were conveniently absent. It was all Mick and Kelly and Steve. They, those guys, you know, Mick and Kelly jumped in the back of a truck and beat up a roadie. Like, it's like they, they're not going to stand around and not be involved. Those guys were, I'm going I'm to get involved kind of guys. Mm. And that's and that's what happened, but it's just so ridiculous. It's so ego driven. And now, I mean, I see these videos of Vinny, and he just came to some kiss convention somewhere with his makeup on. I'm like, oh my god, this guy is like—he's still crazy. Yeah, and he didn't get better. He didn't get better for sure. He got worse. Well, for years there was there was stories about. You know, people paying for a box set and they never got it. And then he was supposed to do all these appearances and he'd cancel. And he showed up at some of them and then others he hasn't. And, you know, he's he's he's, he's living off the kiss thing. That, still tr- trying to when he when he does rear his head. Because that's all he's got. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, but the guy, I mean, if you look back at his per- before kiss... He was in some, you know, he played on some cool records. He played on a couple of Dan Hartman records, some like disco records. He he did some session work. The guy was known as a talented guy. What killed him was his ego. It's the ego. Mm. And 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 the person, you know, it's just I, look. I, I'm not a psychologist, but when you're the new gu- lead guitarist in Kiss in 1983 or whatever year it was, he joined the band didn't mean shit. If he would have joined as the new guitarist in Kiss in 1977, it would have been a different story. Mm. But he joined in 83 when Kiss were barely hanging on themselves. But in his mind, he must have been like, I'm in Kiss. You know, I, I don't know. But the guy, like, tough situation, man. The guy was totally illogical. And, you know, I've seen videos of Gene and Paul from Kiss talking about Vinny, you know, crazy is and i'm like yeah that's 
That's about right. <laughs> Mike, tell me about the phone call. You must have had to make the phone call after the third show to the to, to LA Guns manager and say, right, we're coming home. Yeah, well, we didn't even wait around after the physical altercation. We didn't wait around to talk to anybody. We just got in our bus and started driving home. I didn't know we were off the tour, but I knew there's no way we were going to be on it after that. Yeah, you know, so so we just started driving home, and we got to a truck stop somewhere. Again, no phones, and pull out your roll of quarters, call LA. They had already heard about it. They were pissed, you know, because again, if you don't tour, you're not generating income. You're not generating income to pay salaries. You're not selling T-shirts. You're not. You have to stay on the road. So we now we're not on the road. We have no tour, so we have to come home. Yeah, but you see, Mike, the other thing is the people you're calling, they're not out there. They don't know what, what it's like and what happened with the Vinnie Vincent thing. You know, they can say, oh, you got to stay on the road, but it's like, you're not here. You do not know what actually happened. Exactly. They did not know. They weren't out there, and they really only heard hearsay from somebody probably complaining about the situation. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was tough. You know, we had to go back to LA and it took us three days to drive home from Michigan and it was just horrendous. The the air conditioning broke in the bus. It was just terrible. It's like July. It was so hot. Everybody's miserable and broke. Uh, everybody's just burned out. It's just, it was crazy. The stress. Everyone has this, you know thing about oh being on the road is great and and the bus is immaculate and all that and you paint a very different picture yeah uh, again a band's first album on a major label polygram which was a big label at the time they had kiss and cinderella and bon jovi and Mm -hmm. scorpions and big label you got your bus it's 1988 it's not a brand new bus it's probably a bus from i don't know 1980 82 been used and abused and you get it and you use it abuse it more <laughs> and, it just, and it never smells good at all and you know every night there's a party of people in there smoking cigarettes and spilling booze and beer and whiskey everywhere and just terrible you know you got to live on that thing so yeah no very non-hygienic you know but again that's probably why i'm so healthy today because if touring on that bus for 10 months didn't kill me nothing well as far as germs go well you one, know, of, is, one of the things mike you do say in the book is when you took a break and you went back and met some of the band guys they couldn't believe how well you looked because you weren't doing any of that shit anymore yes i after i left the band's employ I went home and just slept for like a month. I, I don't even know how long. I, I, and I just started eating better and I was started, you know, just toning my body with a little weights and stuff and just trying to like get my act together because I was in terrible shape. So, yes, they came back to New York to play a show and I met them at the airport and they were like, wow, man, look at you. You look amazing. I'm like, well, because I'm not around you idiots anymore. This is why. <laughs> You know, so, so yeah, it was, it's just terrible, the conditions, you you know, uh, in my life, working in bars as a teenager in clubs and all through the LA Guns days, all through into the limelight days and everything else, 
I've inhaled so much cigarette smoke, secondhand smoke. It's just, I'm on that tour bus, there was always smoke. Kelly smoked nonstop. So the cigarette smoke, so you don't have that today. I mean, it's pretty clean everywhere you go. Nobody smokes anywhere anymore, indoors or anything. But back then, I mean, it was just, you constantly smelled like Marlboros. Mm. Marlboros and beer. So it's just like, that's that's the one thing. It's like, I, I always think about that. I DJ sometimes at five in the morning, go home, collapse in bed. You wake up and you just smell of cigarettes which is something which is a very good thing. We've eradicated pretty much. Cigarettes are not what they used to be as far as in popularity. So mm. that's a good thing. Now, the five guys that were in LA Guns back then, you obviously still keep in touch with Kelly and probably Mick as well, but what about the other three guys? When was the last time you, you, you spoke to them or emailed them or whatever? I haven't spoken to those guys in, I don't know. I haven't spoken to Tracy and Phil and I don't know. Seven years, eight years. I just last time I saw him, it was just you know. I'm like, whatever. I'm not dealing with these guys. They just acting weird. Uh, I haven't seen him in a long time. Um, Kelly, I speak to very rarely, but we do send messages back and forth online. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mick, I speak to all the time. Uh, and Steve, I haven't spoken to Steve in probably. I don't know. Same thing. Eight eight years or so. Okay. I mean, I, but I, I look. I was. I'm a little pissed at some of them, but but you know, I've I, I let bygones be bygones, man. I I don't hold grudges. I like I said, you're constantly changing. You leave the past behind. I'm I'm ready to be friendly with anybody that's ready to be friendly with me. So, but uh, I don't sweat it too much. You know, every now and then Tracy will, you know, comment on something, but it's very rare. But I always got along best with Mick and Kelly, and, you know, and, and Steve, uh, you know, I mean, I just, Tracy and I and Phil and I, we just never connected like me and Mick and Kelly. The three of us were like knuckleheads together, a lot of fun, very tight. Well, Phil, Phil, the- Phil probably, I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm jumping the gun here, Mike, but maybe Phil, because he's from the UK, maybe a different sense of humor, a little bit older. It could be, it could be, but no, nah, I mean, you know, I know Phil pretty well when you live with somebody every day for months and months and months and months in each other's pocket every day, you know, getting them bailed out of situations, you you get to know people. Yeah. I know when, I know his sense of humor or, or when somebody's joking or whatever it might be. So, you know, whatever, man, I, you know, I hold no grudges with anybody. I hope to see them all one day at some point, but. I never leave, really leave where I'm at, so that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> now, if they came to your town, and I'm talking about both versions, because I think Kelly's in one with Steve, and of course Phil and Tracy of the other version of the band, would you go see both of them, or would you go see neither of them? I'd go see both of them if they were, yeah. if they would, you know. But again, I'm not going to go, they'd have to invite me down. I'm not yeah. going to go, you know, if they invited me down, I would go. Both, I have nothing against either side. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's ridiculous. But I understand how and why it happened. You know, I, I, I know how it all went down and why it went down and how it's, why there's two, ver- I mean, I, I know all the, you know, the, the, the details. So I hold no grudges, but it's kind of stupid. Do you think all the details that are out there, Mike, I'm going to put you on the spot here now, if you don't want to answer this, that's fine, are more or less accurate or is there a lot out there that, 
that's not you know is there stuff out there that's not being said uh, I mean for the most part technically if you start looking at documents and lawyer stuff and, yeah. and, and filings it's pretty straightforward really mm. you know you have to really this comes down to who really owns the name LA Guns and the Shield logo that's really what it comes down to and and you know Steve had a claim at some point to it. It is very fuzzy, but in my book, there's a there's a paragraph in my book, or, or I would say a paragraph. There's a page in my book that, if you pick up on it, says it all about the name L.A. Guns and who owns what. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but look, it doesn't matter who owns it; it's who files. And who has the filing and who can produce documents of, um, you know, business income and that blah, 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 blah. And it's it very technical, lawyer crap. And once you get lawyers involved, it's never good. So, but, you know, I mean, I, I think it's pretty accurate for the most part. But if you really trace the lineage of the original L.A. Guns, the original L.A. Guns, not who owns the name and the logo, but the lineage of the original version of L.A. Guns, it's Steve's. That's the original lineage. Tracy left Steve. Phil, at one time, was singing with Steve. Yeah. And then Tracy had his own, started his own version of L.A. Guns because Nicky threw him out of Brides of Destruction, or he left Brides of Destruction, or whatever the hell happened there. There's been so much back and forth. But the original band that Tracy Guns left was the original L.A. Guns, and that's Steve's version. Tracy owns the name. I don't know if it's Tracy and Phil, but they own the name and the use of the Shield logo and the name L.A. Guns. But Tracy left the original version to start his own. Yeah, it's it's it, it's it's convoluted, and there's been a lot of member changes. That, you know, Phil has played with Steve, and now Phil has played with Tracy, and you know they've had they've had. God knows how many singers, and yeah. you know it—it—it it, it, it gets messy. But I think the bottom line with any band, Mike, is it all boils down to the guitar player and the singer. You know, I, I know oh, without without a doubt. I know Steve has got his version, and I actually interviewed Steve for the first record, and uh, I'm actually just outside of Boston as well. So he picked up on that very quickly. The 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 number he, he calling and everything, and we had a great chat, but. You know, he, he's the drummer in the band and he might have Kelly, but, you know, they don't have the singer and they don't have the guitar player. So for the optics, for most people, it's Phil sang the songs. They go to see Ballad of Jane. They want to hear Phil singing it. And even though Steve's guy sings really well and he's really good, it's not Phil. I agree with you 100%. It's, it's the brand L.A. gun. You've got to have the singer at least. So they have the singer and they have the guitar player who just happens to have the same name as the name of the band. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a no win there, you know. So uh, I think Steve and Kelly are happy to do what they're doing. They play whatever, you know, how many, half a dozen gigs, dozen gigs at the most a year, whatever they do. They put out a record a year. I think they're happy with it. You know, I mean, Steve's older. I mean, he's got to be close to 70. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he, you know, he can't tour like he used to. So, I mean, I think they're fine with it. But, you know, again, a lot of it is control and ego and 
all that. So it's it's you know it's rock and roll, man. Mm. Ego and drama around every corner. <laughs> Final question from me, Mike, and this is a question you see pop up on social media every now and again, and it'll it'll just put out a general question like, what band would you like to go out on the road with and spend time with? When you were a kid, what was that band for you? When I was a kid? Yeah, what band of any band would you, if someone said, you can go on the road with any band and spend time on the road with them, what was the band you just went, yep, that band? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm assuming as a kid, it's my teens, Yeah. so it would have to be Kiss. I mean, there's just no, no getting around it. Okay. Kiss were everything, man. Kiss were, Kiss were like nothing else. There was nobody else like them. They were completely original and unique and different, and it's just like you never knew what they looked like. You didn't see what they looked like. It was very mysterious, and you were like... I, I want to be around that, man. It's just insane. <laughs> 15, like, you know, exploding hormones and everything else. It's just like, Kiss were just so, every minute of the show was very, it was like a release. It was, uh, it was crazy. Kiss were amazing. And, and I'm talking 75 Kiss, 76 Kiss, those years. So yeah. It's just, uh, you know, Rip your head off! Just amazing. That would have been the band. Yeah, I think and I a, probably would have, I would have not known how to handle it. <laughs> I think there's a lot of a lot of young kids out there these days that they don't get a sense of how big that band was at their height. Yeah, because all they see is all this. I mean, what it is now is just it's so it's sad to me. It's like embarrassing. It's like, look, if you want to go see, I don't know, Deep Purple. And the guys are overweight and gray hair and they look terrible. It doesn't matter. But you can't go see Kiss like that. You can't go see Gene and Paul the way they look and, and, and sound and everything. It just, they just, you know, again, people go, oh, they're doing it for the money. They've got enough money. It's ego. Mm. Nothing, nothing's bigger in rock and roll than ego. It's the same reason Bon Jovi would go out and sing and sound horrible. It's ego. It's got nothing to do with money. And that's what Kiss is all ego. They won't, they can't get off the stage, and it's terrible to me because I saw those guys at the height of their powers when Paul Stanley was 24 years old, just amazing. Blew me away, changed my life, no doubt about it. It was Kiss. But Mike, that's but, one, actually, you bring up Bon Jovi. That's one band you don't really mention in the book, and they're from the area, you know, you, you went to shows to. Um, did you not go see them, or did you just not like them at all? I wasn't really into Bon Jovi. Um, I I really they were on they were on Mercury Records. I didn't really have a good in at the label with them as far as anything like that. I wasn't crazy. They're from New Jersey, and if you're from New York, you look down at people from New Jersey. It's okay. just like <laughs> you know. Plus, they weren't very cool. I mean, John was cool, but the, I mean, Richie was kind of cool. But they were like. The drummer was an older guy. The, the keyboard players is a kind of goofy. You, you know, the, the bass player was an old dude from like the Jersey Shore. So they they were very cool. And plus, they got so big so quickly. Oh yeah. That you couldn't. There, there was no time to really latch on to them in that way. And they weren't a big drug band. Bon Jovi. They weren't doing cocaine. None of those guys. Those guys were drinking, but they weren't. They weren't a drug band. They were very straight and clean, and that was also their image. So they had to kind of live up to that, you know, that whole 16 magazine image. 
But yeah, I never had anything against Bon Jovi. I think their music was great. I mean, Slippy When Wet. Uh, my old roommate, Bruno Ravel, was Bon to Bon Jovi before anybody. But I, I mean, I, I didn't dislike him. I just, it was never like, let's go party with Bon Jovi. It was just not cool. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike, tell everyone where they can get a copy of the book. It's on Amazon uh, uh, right now. I think it's Amazon globally. And I'm working on getting this distribution finalized so it'll be available on across the board globally on like every platform but right now it's amazon uh tales from the gutter uh and other rock and roll shenanigans is the name of the book my instagram is a great place to find out all my links if you go to instagram if you have an instagram account 1985 road dog is my instagram go to my profile there's my link tree with the link to buy the book and all my there's a link to my youtube channel where i tell stories uh so that's probably the best place to find everything is just go to the instagram mm. uh, bruno Ravel is one talented dude bruno's great yeah he's always was talented awesome yeah bruno's bruno's dad played in the new york philharmonic really uh yeah, violin, uh, you know, right in the front, first first row, first chair, whatever that is, very mean, it means something in that world. Uh, but Bruno's very, very in, uh, smart and very intelligent musician, very, very in tune. You can hear something off pitch, you know, you can catch all that kind of stuff. He always had a good ear. Mm. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for giving me so much of your time. Uh, pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for giving me the time. And uh, send me the link or let me know when this is going to air or whatever is going to happen with it so I can check it out. I will. All right, Mike. Have a good rest of the night. You too. Thank you. No problem. Take care. There you go. There is Richie's chat with Mike, author of Tales from the Gutter. Go out and get yourself a copy of that book. And yeah, I just called him Mike because I know I'm going to butcher his name again. Usually you get like a little break in the beginning or something because Richie will ask the name and he gets the pronunciation. Sometimes when you get stuff where it could lean every way, but in this case, he didn't. So yeah, there you go. There's, there's, my, there's my fess up. I just don't want to do it twice in one show. Anyways, though, good stuff in that book. You can tell just from the conversation that Richie had that uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg of everything in there. So if you really want to kind of have that down and dirty on uh, what's going on as a road manager back in the day. Great book to read. And again, just, you know, shout out to uh, to our buddies over at Battle of the Bands. You want to check that show out. It's battleofthebandspod.com, just like when you do focusonmetalpod.com. So easy to remember, right? Go check that out. Great stuff. They were just doing a whole series on uh, Bon Jovi versus Motley Crue. They get a new one out with uh, with Randy Blythe versus the Czech Republic. Good stuff. So go check those guys out. You will not be disappointed. And, and I know what you're saying. You're like, holy shit, Scott. You are upbeat like fuck today. What's going on? Got to tell you, I am psyched. My brandy new Boss SDE 3000 EVH delay came in today. I wasn't expecting it for a couple of weeks. This thing is sick. It's one of the last major projects that Eddie was working actively on uh, before he died. And it is pretty much a spot on replication of his wet, dry, wet, whole delay setup. The thing is incredible. And I am psyched. 
It will go along with all my other EVH pedals in my EVH board. And uh, that is why I am damn psyched today as I'm recording this one. So I believe next week or next episode, however that is, because it's summer and I am just busy as fuck right now, trying to get stuff out as quickly as Richie gets it to me. This one got a little delayed because construction here and all that. But anyways, Richie's got a great new chat that he just did with uh, Chris McLernan. And uh, you might know him as uh, he was in Saigon Kick. He was in Cold Sweat with uh, Mark Ferrari. And he's done a lot of other stuff as well. He's got this brand new Canel project that is more of like a Thin Lizzy sounding thing. So right up. Richie's Alley. So I think that on the next episode, we'll be running that brand new chat that Richie just did with Chris. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for myself and Richie, have yourselves a great meta week. Go get yourselves copies of Tales from the Gutter. And until we talk to you again, as always, remember. Focus on metal. Go home.